are listening to the DJI podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations, and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. Hello and welcome. I'm Siobhan Wills and I'm director of the TJI, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this panel discussing the the outstanding equality and rights issues that have not yet been resolved um, that uh, set out in the Belfast Agreement but have yet to be resolved and to discuss and debate um, what should and how to incorporate um, these rights and uh, equality issues into a Bill of Rights. Um, chairing the session today is Ailey Shruni, who is Emeritus Professor of the TJI and uh, was a, a close colleague and her office was just across from mine, so it's great to see her here. Um, so I'm really pleased that you're all here and I'm going to hand you over to Eilish now who will introduce the participants and uh, who will chair the panel. Thank you. Thank you very much Siobhan and thanks to TJI for hosting this event. Uh, before I introduce the panel, um, I have a few words to say. So the title of our event is Constitutional Conversations, Rights and Wrongs. We'll consider the rights and equality commitments that remain outstanding from the 1998 agreement. What wrongs require legal protection? What are the implications of our reflections for preparations being made for a unity union referendum? We aim to make the event as participatory as possible for some people that's very easy on Zoom, and for others, it's not. The chat box is a simple way to have your say. So we'd ask you to use it. You know, for example, what rights do you want to see protected in an all-island Bill of Rights or in a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland? Please make use of the chat box if possible to have your say as we go along. However, if you're simply here to listen, then you're also very welcome. Before the presentations and reflections on wrongs of, I'm reflecting on wrongs of the moment, and I want to say a few words about the proposed legacy legislation or amnesty law, as it's been called. Prime Minister Johnson plans to introduce an amnesty law against the express wishes of bereaved families here, of victims and survivor groups of all the political parties and the great majority of people. The following words that I'd like to say are not my own. They're taken from the opening of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. The tragedies of the past have left a deep and profoundly regrettable legacy of suffering. We must never forget those who have died or been injured and their families but we can best honour them through a fresh start in which we firmly dedicate ourselves to the achievement of reconciliation, tolerance and mutual trust and to the protection and vindication of the rights of all, of the human rights of all. These words are not forgotten. They belong to us all. They were subject to referendums in both jurisdictions on the island, they are the bedrock of the agreement. Prime Minister Johnson may do as he will at Westminster, but his amnesty law is not the end of the journey for justice for bereaved families. Okay, now let's turn to the panel and their themes. I'll just read them out straightforwardly. Mark Bassett, is going to discuss parity of esteem, mutual respect, John Gormley, language rights, Paddy Kelly, Bill of Rights, Charter, Human Rights Act, myself, equality and gender equality, section 75. Colin Harvey will be the last speaker and he'll speak to what next and over to you. So now I'll say, Mark, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Eilish, and uh, just uh, thanks to everyone in the TGI for the opportunity to, to speak. Today, uh, I'm looking at uh, parity of esteem and mutual respect, and the, the starting place for that 
is the promise uh, from the two governments, uh, which was endorsed by the participants at the part at the multi-party talks. And this is in section uh, one five, and I'll just read the text that was agreed. Uh, it was whatever choice is freely expressed, exercised by a majority of the people of Northern Ireland, the power of the sovereign government with jurisdiction there shall be exercised with rigorous impartiality on behalf of all of the people in the diversity of their identities and traditions and shall be founded on the principles of full respect for and equality of civil, political, social and cultural rights, freedom from discrimination for all citizens uh, and of parity of esteem and of just and equal treatment for the identity, ethos and aspirations of both communities. Uh, parity of esteem, uh, it's not defined in the agreement itself. Uh, and I found that some of the international comparisons with Canada, uh, Belgium and Bosnia are, are not that helpful. But what we can say about the, the promise there is that it's a duty on the sovereign power and that there's a focus on what's called the two main communities. Uh, perhaps the best description uh, that I've come across was produced by the, the Human Rights Commission and it, it described party of esteem as being the identity and ethos of each community, including their distinct developments, sorry, distinctive elements should be considered, recognized and respected. Uh, mutual respect and party of esteem should be ensured insofar as possible in a rights context through a common commitment to fairness, equality and justice in all circumstances and that the government and public bodies have an obligation fully to respect on the basis of equality of treatments, the identity and ethos of both communities. Uh, some of the best examples of party of esteem in practice is the uh, consociational aspects of the institutions and the voting arrangements. So we can see that in the coalition government, uh, cross-community voting and uh, petition of concern. And the agreement itself, there is the task of monitoring uh, the promotion of equality of opportunity and party of esteem with the Equality Commission. Uh, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission was to consider how it could be reflected in a Bill of Rights and advise on the basis of that. Uh, the 2008 uh, advice from the Commission to the uh, Secretary of State uh, recommended that party of esteem could be given further effect in uh, anti-discrimination provisions, democratic rights, education rights, cultural rights, and children's rights uh, that, that would be appropriate to this jurisdiction. Uh, more recently, we've had the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture, and Tradition report. Uh, probably that doesn't really uh, advance, I think, the understanding of, of that party of esteem concept, but it does make some helpful uh, suggestions and in particular that, that symbols should be used in a way to advance uh, mutual respect. Uh, the courts here in this jurisdiction I think have, have quite struggled to, to give party of esteem uh, any real meaning. Uh, the few cases in which it has reached either the High Court or the Court of Appeal, uh, the, the courts are really not adding much to you know, the, the affidavit evidence of the NIO and the, and the submissions of, of Crown Council are, are adopted. Uh, as correct statements of the law and that, that can be seen in the was a challenge to the flags order uh, by Connor Murphy back in 2000 and more recently there was a challenge uh, by Helen McMahon to the flying of the union flag on Orm, sorry, Oma courthouse and both the court of appeal and the high court looked at uh, that promise and said it was an obligation to exercise with rigorous impartiality but also that any power being exercised would, would be founded on the principles of full respect for and equality of uh, the, the communities. The uh, so in effect that the courts have accepted that the you know, that parity of esteem promise is really given effect through the anti-discrimination legislation. Uh, and the, the my own take is that uh, I think that's. Uh, possibly not correct. The party of esteem as set out in the agreement, I think should, as I have always understood it as to be something distinct from the more prescriptive promise of equal rights. It's, it's more an institutional design. Uh, it reflects an idea of just government. Uh, at its most basic, it's, it's a principle which seeks to recognize and accommodate to uh, conflicting uh, political traditions through consensus where possible and neutrality uh, where that consensus is, consensus is absent. 
it's, it's the hope that the institutions in the state would be equally owned and respected by both unionism and nationalism. Uh, and it's been very hard to define it, but uh, take kind of the idea or, or the description that uh, Mr. Justice, Pot or Justice Potter, who was a member of the U United States Supreme Court, and there was many years when the, that Supreme Court was trying to find a workable standard for free speech in the context of pornography. And Justice Potter, he declined to, to define obscenity in one particular case, but he just said, I know it when I see it. Uh, and 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, there is no agreed definition of parity esteem and mutual respect, but I think I can, I know it when I don't see it. And that there's some important and uh, examples uh, some of the more unattractive features of the, the current UK constitution, you've hereditary monarchy, coronation oath, and oath of supremacy. And uh, more recently, uh, in, in this jurisdiction, there are some measures which seem to regard some symbols, commemoration, language, or viewpoints as inherently neutral, while others are divisive. Uh, and I don't think that can be reconciled with that premise either. Uh, if we, in the Republic at the moment, and uh, one of my hopes would be that uh, any new constitutional arrangement will give uh, prominence to uh, parity of esteem. And you know, we should take in, in the text of the Irish Constitution, Article 3, uh, as setting the new tone. But some of the aspects that would have to be revisited, I think, would have to be the preamble, the, the primary status uh, to the Irish language, maybe the flag, the anthem. Uh, very important that equal status is given to British citizenship in terms of all rights, uh, civil, political, and cultural. And we'd have to look again at compulsory Irish in school and entry to the legal professions. So the hope would be that uh, parity of esteem, when it's given full effect either in this jurisdiction or in all Ireland's Bill of Rights, uh, it, it won't be seen by anybody as a sword against the other side or as a shield against the other side. Instead, it's a, it's a management tool to try and find consensus and agreed and respectful outcomes. Thanks, Irish. Hopefully, I haven't gone over this morning. Thanks very much, Mark. That's uh, that excellent. Thank you very much. And you've reminded me also um, to just make it clear to everyone listening that each of the panel makes a contribution in a personal capacity. So, thank you for that, too. Can I call on yourself now, John? That's better. Thanks very much, and thanks also to You're on mute again, John. That's it. Just, uh, just thanking TGI for giving us the opportunity for this discussion. So I want to discuss the Irish language as a, an area where outstanding commitments remain from the Good Friday Agreement, and perhaps derive some lessons from that. In 1998, the Good Friday Agreement committed the British government to taking resolute action to promote the Irish language, to facilitate and encourage its use, and to remove restrictions which would discourage its development. The British government became a signatory to the European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages in 2001, with a commitment to resolute action to promote regional or minority languages in order to safeguard them, including an obligation upon public authorities to remove any legal or practical obstacles to the use of minority language place names. Further commitments were made as part of the St Andrews Agreement in 2006, with the British government promising to introduce an Irish Language Act, reflecting on the experiences of Wales and Ireland, and to working with the incoming executive to develop strategies to enhance and protect the language. All of these commitments are still awaiting implementation. In 2011, the Advisory Committee on the Framework Convention for National Minorities called upon the British government to develop comprehensive legislation on the Irish language in the North and to take resolute measures to protect and implement more effectively the language rights of the Irish speaking community. That call fell on deaf ears. Fast forward then to the New Decade New Approach Agreement in 2020 which promised legislation to provide official recognition of the status of the Irish language and to create a commissioner to support, protect, enhance and monitor the use of Irish language by public authorities. The agreement also committed the executive to producing a draft Irish language strategy. Again, we have yet to see the introduction of the necessary legislation to give effect to these commitments. 
That's just a very quick run through uh, over 23 years of rights and equality commitments in respect of the Irish language and indeed Ulster Scots, stemming from the Good Friday Agreement, which remain outstanding. The failure to deliver on these commitments has meant that the Irish language community has faced a daily battle to achieve recognition of their rights. I would mention just a couple of recent examples. Last month, the newsletter carried the headline, quote, provocative Irish language street sign is said to be raising tensions, unquote, in a housing development in South Down, despite the fact that the signage proposal went through formal council processes, was supported by a majority of residents, and was equality screened. I should also say that it wasn't an Irish language street sign, it was a bilingual street sign. Queen's University has persistently refused requests for bilingual signage on campus, despite the fact that other universities in Wales, Ireland and Scotland have such bilingual signage. Queen's has also set its face against a very modest residential scheme proposal for Irish speakers, despite the fact that such schemes exist in every other university on this island. These are only a couple of recent examples of what I see as a mindset that thinks there is a right not to see or hear the Irish language and that this supposed right is somehow of equal standing with the Irish language rights set out in the Good Friday Agreements and, Good Agreement and elsewhere. No such rights exists to be shielded from the Irish language or Ulster Scots. On the contrary, the Equality Commission has stated that it considers that the use of Irish and Ulster Scots in the North for common or official purposes would normally and objectively be considered a neutral act that would not be discriminatory. It is also stated that the use of Irish in signage is a neutral act and that the speaking of Irish or its more general use in the community does not diminish the entitlements of those whose right to their British identity is guaranteed in the Good Friday Agreement. The Advisory Committee on the Framework Convention has stated that implementation of minority rights protected under the Framework Convention is not to be considered as discriminating against other persons. It also warned against governments or agencies adopting a static interpretation of the notion of good relations, which pushes the protection of language rights to the fringes in order to avoid any perceived potential to create tensions between the two main communities. In fact, the UN Special Rapporteur on Minority Issues reported in 2017 that ethnic tensions and conflicts within the state are more likely to be avoided where language rights are in place to address the causes of alienation marginalization and exclusion. The experience of broken promises, unfulfilled commitments, false equivalence and inertia in the face of supposed and unquantified opposition is not confined to the Irish language, but is also found in other areas of rights, including legacy and victims rights and abortion rights. These and other rights need to be protected. Unless and until these and other rights are explicitly included in a Bill of Rights, I believe that citizens of this part of the island or of a future United Ireland will not receive the civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights to which they should be entitled to expect. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. That was excellent. Paddy, can I call you and now? Paddy Kelly. Thanks, Eilish. Um, can you hear me okay? Can hear you fine. Uh, and apologies in advance. I've been having some uh, IT difficulties this morning uh, in case I, I bug out. Um, can I again reiterate the thanks to TJI and to the Human Rights Consortium uh, for, for today's event? And can I congratulate the Consortium on an excellent programme of events for the Human Rights Festival? Um, noting the attendees, I would also say that um, uh, a lot of people who are who are joining us this morning will know this, what I'm going to say inside out. And uh, in that context, I'd be delighted to hear of their uh, views and how, how we promote this discourse uh, within the, the constitutional conversation going forward. Um, a meeting of the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference took place uh, at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office last Thursday, the 2nd of December. UK government was represented by the Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, and the Irish government was represented by Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, and Minister for Justice, uh, Helen McEntee. So a high, high level uh, engagement. Um, the conference considered, among other things, rights and citizenship matters. And in their communique after the conference, the UK and Irish government reaffirmed their commitment to the important guarantees of rights and the protections set out in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. 
So what does the British and Irish government reaffirming their commitment to the important guarantees of rights and protection set out in Belfast Good Friday Agreement mean in reality? Or should I say, what should it mean in reality? It means that the Bill of Rights provided for in the Good Friday Agreement 23 years ago, a Bill of Rights with the potential for strong enforceable protections of socioeconomic rights, strong equality protections for everyone, regardless of their gender, religion, ethnic origin, age, ability, disability, a Bill of Rights which would ensure a child with mental health needs would be able to access services, even if their parents couldn't afford it, will finally see its way onto the Westminster Statute Books. And the communique I've acted upon would mean that both governments will finally deliver on the promised All Ireland, All Ireland Charter of Rights, which has the potential to ensure equivalency of rights protections on the island, growing protections in both jurisdictions. A Charter of Rights, which the respective human rights commissions have not looked at in 10 years. One can only speculate as to what the safety net, the Charter and the Bill of Rights might have provided in the time of COVID and in the inevitable diminution of rights in this jurisdiction as a result of Brexit. The communication also mean that the British government will shortly introduce at Westminster legislation, sorry, Westminster legislation to give effect to Irish language rights as provided for in the Good Friday Agreement and subsequent uh, agreements as John has outlined. It means or should mean that the human rights institutions in both jurisdictions will finally be properly resourced and their independence and power strengthened and that equality of opportunity in relation to religion and political opinion, gender, race, disability, age, marital status, dependence and sexual orientation will become a reality as opposed to a tick, tick box exercise in an equality screening form. It means that there should be no diminution of rights as a result of the UK leaving the EU. And it means that the British government have, have recommitted to the incorporation of the ECHR with direct access to the courts and remedies for breach of the convention. That's to say the Human Rights Act and Judicial Review Access. And it also means that individuals that work to give effect to the Good Friday Agreement in all its parts will not be discriminated against. The British and Irish government reaffirmed reaffirming of their commitment to the important guarantees of rights and the protection set out in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement means the imminent delivery of all the undelivered rights protections provided for in the Good Friday Agreement, if only. You will of course be very surprised to hear that it appears that the British government were being disingenuous when they signed their name to the joint communique. Only three days later, on Sunday the 5th of December, <coughs> excuse me, Dominic Grab, UK Justice Secretary, and Brandon Lewis's cabinet colleague, in an interview with Times Radio, said he wanted to overall overhaul the Human Rights Act to correct the balance of freedom of speech and privacy. While in an article in yesterday's Times, it is reported that his boss, Peppa Pig's number one fan, wants to further curtail the court's ability to overrule decisions by ministers through the judicial review process. Judicial review being the key legal enforcement tool to ensure government is held to account for its delivery on its human rights commitments under the Human Rights Act. And so it goes on on an almost daily basis. The British government's continued war on human rights and the mechanisms we rely on to vindicate human rights with no regard to the impact of their actions on the important guarantees of rights and the protections set out in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which they recommitted themselves to last Thursday. We need only look at their approach um, to the Brexit negotiations, nor do they give any consideration to how their undermining of the human rights protections provided for in the Good Friday Agreement will impact on our most vulnerable citizens and their ability to vindicate their rights and secure access to critical services, services like mental health services, housing, education, cancer services, respite care. What is clearly evident today, 23 years after it signed a binding international agreement and five days after signing yet another communique with the Irish government, reaffirming their commitment to the important guarantees of rights and protection set out in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is that the British government has not and will not honor its commitments to deliver on rights protections in the Good Friday Agreement. 
Rather, as we've seen through the Brexit negotiations, uh, negotiation, the Good Friday Agreement and our rights have become political football, footballs used and discarded when viewed by them as politically expedient. Thankfully, the agreement presents another way to deliver rights protections and a Bill of Rights, an opportunity to shape a new society where the rights of all are protected in a new constitution for a new Ireland. What those rights protections look like has to be the core of the constitutional conversation and any new constitution on this island. They need to include socioeconomic rights, cultural rights, women's rights, children's rights, environment rights, digital rights, the rights of people with disability. They have to be enjoyed by everyone without discrimination and they have to be enforceable. Human rights advocates like those on this meeting today, community activists, trade unionists, civil society, ensured rights were at the good, heart of the Good Friday Agreement. As the constitutional conversation develops and grows, we need to step up again and do the same thing again. We need to take control of and frame the agenda ensure the rights protections are at the heart of the conversation and any new constitution. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paddy. That was excellent. I'll move on to my own uh, contribution. I've already had an opportunity to say a few things earlier, so this will be short. Sometimes I wonder when the call goes out for gender equality, who is listening or where in public life are women's voices heard? Who is listening when, for instance, in 2019, the Women's Policy Group published the Women's Manifesto ahead of the elections that year? They will probably do the same before the elections next May and the Women's Manifesto is available online. Who listens when in 2016, the Equality Coalition submitted an analysis of the equality impacts, including gender, of the Stormont House Agreement. The Gender Principles for Dealing with the Legacy of the Past, published six years ago, has clearly been ignored in the plans for an amnesty law that I mentioned earlier. The recently released report from the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture and Tradition caused a commotion. Amongst the 12 members on the commission, there was one woman, Dr. Katie Radford. That imbalance caused a commotion in the women's sector. Is anyone listening? Do marginalized women matter? Now, I appreciate this is not a great start to a short presentation on women and the equality legislation that followed from the Good Friday Agreement. Little progress on gender equality has been reported for marginalised women. The Equality Coalition report on Stormont House tells of significant progress in employment equality between the two main communities, as they're called. However, right now, and for this presentation on gender equality, I'm afraid I'm I've almost given up on trying to emphasise the positive. That may be because I've been reading the agreement again and have admired the hope and promise it offered, the equality and rights principles and policy commitments it affirmed, as well as its recognition of women's marginalization in public and political life and the need for gender equality. The reality almost 25 years later, with one in three children in Derry living in poverty, and too many families across this wealthy island and the one and the island next door blighted by social need. It takes an effort to hold on to what really matters about equality in the agreement and to continue to press for its realisation. A useful starting point might be to revisit the Human Rights Commission advice to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland submitted in December 2008. This time, 13 years ago, in its submission to the Commission, in its submission, the Commission further developed the nine equality grounds named in Section 75. Patty's already referred to them. They are religion, politics, race, age, marital status, sexual orientation, gender, disability, and dependence. <laughs> 
It drew on progressive international standards that include social and economic rights, and it named around 30 sources of discrimination, including intersecting grounds that require protection against discrimination. The named categories include, for instance, Irish travellers, nationality and health as grounds to be included in the new Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. That was 13 years ago. When you think of it though, frustration at slow progress and even exasperation at the failure of Westminster and Leinster House to support and oversee the full implementation of the agreement. These reactions provide strong reasons to draw on the Women's Manifesto, to integrate the gender principles for legacy, to engage civil society afresh and encourage everyone interested in equality and rights to join in the work of drawing up a Bill of Rights that is fit for purpose. Make it the best small island Bill of Rights in the world. A brilliant Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, if you will, with the strongest commitments to women's social and economic equality. Let's do it. Why not? Thank you. I can't say to myself that was a brilliant presentation, but I will say over to you, Colin. Thank you very much indeed. That was brilliant, Eilish. Well done. Excellent presentation. Brilliant Bill of Rights would be great. So th thank you all very much. Thank you, TGI and the Human Rights Consortium. I just want to commend the Human Rights Consortium in all involved for organizing such wonderful events all this week in Human Rights Day, Human Rights Week, leading up to Human Rights Day on Friday. Um, so well done, all involved. So I've got the rather problematic question of what next, which I'm tempted to ask everybody who's who's in this call today, but just share some reflections on the what next question. We've been doing a lot of thought in this discussion today and beyond today on the current challenges around rights. And a lot of that discussion, and it's clear in all the presentations so far, is how we advance a lot of unfinished business, whether it's the Bill of Rights that never happened, the Charter of Rights that never happened, the Irish language legislation that we've outlined, the general mood and attitude towards core concepts in the agreement that haven't been taken forward. It's a list that we, we all know very well. I suppose a question I would pose today is, we need to think about why we are where we are now and what lessons we can learn from that legacy, if you like, of, of unimplemented commitments. If we are entering into another discussion, what can we learn from where we are now? In a sense, many of us are probably best captured by doing the best with what's there in the very difficult circumstances of Brexit and really trying to maximize the potential of the tools that are already there in the circumstances where there's a lot of unfinished business. You know, the Human Rights Act is still there, although we know what the current government's views towards it and what might happen next. And Patty has, has noted that. Uh, really woefully, undiscussed in the wider public debate is the important human rights and equality guarantee that's in the protocol, Article 2 of the protocol non-diminution provision. While it doesn't address all the problems, contains some mitigation, and we need to hear more about Article 2 of the protocol in the public discussion. There are piecemeal equality and anti-discrimination guarantees. There are institutions on human rights and equality. And there are piecemeal gains being made, and we need to think about why those gains have been made and what mobilizations led to them being made. But essentially, it's a sort of doing the best with what we have and making the most of things and holding on to what we have seems to be the dominant with a lot of unfinished business. And things at the moment on a number of the issues we've raised in this discussion, let's be candid, don't appear promising. 
the, for example, the Bill of Rights does not appear imminent uh, as we speak at the moment. Uh, and that can be said of a range of equality and human rights promises, which I suspect reflects the mood of some of the presentations uh, today. But that also raises questions too about the future. Because the question I want to pose in this discussion is that what is it about our arrangements that means that equality rights and economic and social justice are the casualty, really, of where we currently are? Where are the blockages? What are they? And why are these things not advancing? And we need to have candid and honest conversations about the answers to those questions to reflect on the lessons learned, but also what next? Because I think it, it is also raising a question that I've heard in a number of events that, that we've done and in other rooms as well, that may it only be possible to have a comprehensive discussion about equality and rights and social justice on this island within the context of a larger conversation about constitutional change? Um, question mark. <laughs> I just put that out there. So my sense is that moving now on to the future and the discussion about where this goes next, that there's been a lot of thought, including by this group and by academics and others, to the referendum processes and how they will work and the framework for that. And there are areas of convergence and there are areas of ongoing discussion. But what it looks like to me is that we are increasingly moving into a phase now where people are beginning to tentatively move towards setting out their stalls around what a new and united Ireland uh, will look like. Uh, so I think we're on the, 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 the precipice, if you like, of an evolving number of proposals that are going to emerge around what a new and united Ireland might begin to look like. What's been interesting in that is there's been a focus on participation and civic engagement. So the question that people will raise, often even to a group like us, is why don't you come up with your own blueprint? Why doesn't the Constitutional Conversations group this afternoon, when we finish this, uh, sit around a virtual table and draft a new constitution for United Ireland? But I think the focus on participation raises a really important question of principle. Because the way you get to new constitutional arrangements matters as much as the content of the new arrangements. And I think those who have focused on civic engagement and widespread participation do that on a principal basis because they know that a group of politicians or a group of academics could lock themselves in a room and draft a constitution this afternoon. But my suspicion is they also know that that's not the way to produce a sustainable new constitution for new constitutional arrangements, that there has to be widespread civic participation in the process itself. That doesn't stop people producing their own drafts, putting ideas on the table, but I think the issue of how you get to new arrangements matters almost as much as what's in the new arrangements themselves. Also, there is a conundrum here. The Good Friday Agreement makes absolutely clear that constitutional goals and outcomes are equally legitimate. My view has been and remains that public institutions here, private institutions, civil society, should be doing the preparatory work for all constitutional eventualities. And that includes a potential United Ireland as well. But a question I want to put out there is there seems to be heightened anxiety and nervousness among public bodies here and in civil society to enter this space. But if constitutional outcomes are equally legitimate, where is that anxiety coming from? Why are our departments not doing the preparatory work that needs to be done? Why are more civil society organizations not involved in this discussion? In terms of what we're talking about, the debate spans, uh, spans a range of options. My view is some of the most interesting debates will be within, if you want to, be reductionist, both camps, right? So some of the most interesting debates within the, 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 the United Ireland or constitutional change side of the argument 
will be what the content of a new and united Ireland looks like, because you have a wide range of participants in that conversation with fundamentally different views on social, economic, political life. What's emerged so far, it seems to me, is a continuum between those who are engaged on a more cautious basis, a sort of continuity model of New and United Ireland, to those who see it as a more transformative conversation, but chance to reimagine the island. And it will be interesting to see where that debate ends up once we get more and more into the process. My sense is those involved in the human rights and equality debate are strongly in the transformation side of that continuum, but it is a continuum. And as more and more people enter the conversation, there'll be also more and more people in that debate who have a much more cautious view about what new arrangements uh, look like, which is an argument for people being less nervous about entering the space. Change also won't be a one-off. And Union United Ireland won't be a one-off event. It'll be a process. There'll be discussions about what happens before, during, and after. How much of what we're talking about today will be fleshed out or detailed in advance? How much may emerge in processes afterwards? And if you're using the language of a new United Ireland, it will always be work in progress. There'll always be new human rights challenges, new quality challenges that evolve over time. So it won't be a one-off event. But ultimately what we're talking about is how you make sure human rights and equality advocates, arguments and analysis, how they are all baked into the process from the start. Because what we're heading towards, I think now, in the debate of my sense of it, and I could be wildly uh, wrong, uh, not immune to criti criticism on this stuff, is that we're heading towards a New Ireland policy statement or manifesto. In other words, something that looks like a document that will be put to people substantively. And you can see the beginnings of that conversation as it is evolving and emerging. So the question really to end today is, what do you mean when you talk about a new and united Ireland in substantive terms, people quite rightly are asking, what does that mean? How much will actually be possible in advance and how much will be left after the votes? Just to give you an example, if you're amending the existing constitution, perhaps this doesn't arise as prominently, but if you're proposing a new constitution, is that done in advance or is it better done in a constitutional convention after the referendums at which people who may have been reluctant to participate before will participate afterwards? Uh, you know, an obvious point being that many within political unionism simply won't contemplate losing these referendums. And I think we have to acknowledge that and work out how that's addressed. So how much will we address in advance and how much afterwards? So two themes to end. I've gone on a bit there, but just to end. Um, first theme is, what are we going to do about the human rights and equality crisis now? Many of the presentations have listed a range of issues that, that haven't been advanced. What do we do about that? And what lessons are learned? How do we ensure equality and rights are baked into the constitutional change conversation from day one and not left outside that discussion. Just to end then, uh, two final points. If constitutional goals in Northern Ireland are equally legitimate and accorded equal recognition, why is there a societal-wide nervousness, which there is, among civil society and public bodies about doing the preparatory work? Why aren't more people asking public bodies directly uh, what work have they done? And just to end, all we're really talking about today is that instead of endlessly and tediously speculating about the constitutional question in the abstract, we're preparing the ground to ask people the constitutional question and know the consequences of answering that question in detail and ensuring that human rights and equality are built into all aspects of the process. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. That's me now. Thank you very much, Colin. Excellent presentation. Thank you.
I would like to encourage um, people who are in on the Zoom call to um, indicate either a willingness to have a question. Let me just see there now. I have one question here coming up and I would encourage others on the call to come in with any questions. I'd also encourage our panel to maybe step up to the challenge that Colin makes about participation and the reluctance. Um, the, this question is a Bill of Rights for United Ireland, a way to disintermediate from the human rights existential crisis in Westminster and to bring about a unity poll that works for all. Is this not the way to reignite uh, the Bill of Rights process that has reached inertia? And that's from Saul. Um, and we've also got some people coming in to thank us for the presentations. Um, so is it a way to move away from the human rights existential crisis in Westminster? You've already mentioned that, uh, Colin, and to bring about a unity poll that works for all. Is this not the way to reignite the Bill of Rights process that has reached inertia? A very interesting comment from Saul, and it seems contrary to the reluctance to enter the frame of discussion that you've mentioned, Colin. Would anybody like to take that up? That question up. Do you want me to? Yes. I was just a yes, um, very quickly. I don't don't think there's any conflict or tension between seeking to maximise what is there now in terms of human rights and equality protections. So, you know, what Patty outlined about, you know, not letting the UK government off the hook in terms of what it's supposed to be doing in terms of a range of these things, I think is fundamentally uh, important. And in some senses, because of the equivalence doctrine and the agreement, my view would be that whatever you lever for equality and rights in the here and now also adds that into the conversation about the future. So there's a win-win in that. But I think it also raises hard questions about why we are where we are, yeah, across the range of these areas of candid responses to that and then working out where we go next. So I just really reporting back that in a number of the conversations we've had and other discussions, people are have we reached the end of the road, right? Uh, let's be, be provocative. Have we reached the end of the road in terms of what the current arrangements here can deliver for a meaningful equality and rights agenda in the North, Northern Ireland, or on this island, I think is a legitimate question. And if the constitutional change conversation, despite what people say is happening, it's gaining momentum, then really human rights, civil society activists and equality activists who've led the way really. Like I've heard um, Patty say, say this in the last meeting we had that ultimately governments catch up in the end, uh, should be again leading the way again and should take comfort really from the values of the agreement that you're preparing the ground. And you're also trying to ensure that the parameters of these conversations have a terrible habit to get quite frozen early on. So to make sure that equality rights, social justice is at the heart of all that. Question mark. Anyone else want to come in? Just indicate, please. If I-, I think, Sorry, sorry. I mean, just to, I don't want to repeat what Colin said, but I, um, um, I suppose I am the born optimist and it is there in the Good Friday Agreement. So I think we should continue. Um, I suppose it is to, to ride uh, both horses as it were. Uh, and I would be firmly committed to continue to try to work to give effect to what's provided for in the Good Friday Agreement. And, and I think society is with us and all you need to do is to look at the, uh, the polling that was done between Queens and the, the Human Rights Consortium recently where um, things like 83% of people in the North believe that the right to adequate standard of physical and mental health should be protected in the Bill of Rights. 88% believe the right to education should be protected. 84 believing uh, a right to adequate housing. Um, 75 supporting, in, uh, supporting an enforceability of rights in the Bill of Rights. So I suppose what I'm saying is that um, uh, 
that government is to go back to what, what Colin uh, said again government is far behind uh, what human rights activists what NGOs and critically what society is saying it wants in terms of, of rights protection and um, so I think we need to continue to put pressure on government uh, both in the assembly but also Westminster because that's where it should be legislated for in the Bill of Rights and um, to actually honour their commitments into the nationally binding agreement and to do what the people say that they want actually done and we also need to look at other ways I mean you just you can look at the the uh, powerful achievement through litigation in terms of marriage equality and a woman's right to choose well we need to see that delivered in terms of practice but where civil society and individuals have stepped up uh, and actually made um made governments uh do the right thing so yes we need to to deliver on what's in the good friday agreement uh but um, again we can't ignore the conversation that's going on and we need to learn the lessons as colin says uh in terms of the good friday agreement and we need to work together to ensure that the, that the discourse um, not only uh, includes rights protections in, the, in any new constitution, but also that it's the centre. We need to take control of the agenda. We can't let government uh, dictate not only what the agenda is, but who is around the table. Uh, we need to force our way um, onto that table and to uh, have our fingerprints all over the agenda. Um, just on that, Paddy, on what you've said, uh, Fidelma, comes in with a, a really interesting high question, and I'll give it to you now. She says, Colin raised the issue of do we have the poll first and then work out the nuts and bolts of the constitutional framework. Her concern is that the inclusion of particular group rights would start to be filtered out in that process due to power differences between groups. She asks, have you any thoughts on how that can be avoided? Okay, and, and other people will also, at least yeah. yourself, mention participation too. It's a great question. Yeah, I'm just at the moment posing some questions about. I think we've put myself, many others have put a lot of emphasis on advance detail, um, getting as much as possible out there in advance. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. Just posing the question that if you were to definitively go down the road of a new constitution, of how that emerges, there's some examples around the world. For example, Chile's doing some interesting things recently around participative processes for designing constitutional change. So, Fidelma, you're, it's a great question. So one of the things, perhaps, that if you think about a new constitution, you design the mechanism to try and filter out those sorts of imbalances that you try and create. Like obviously, what's really encouraging in the before conversation is just how many people are talking about citizens' assemblies and civic engagement and people's assemblies and civic participation. So there's an interesting question of design. So you would want your designers to be thinking now about how you design a participative process that addresses some of those concerns that Eilish also raised as well about gender equality, marginalized vulnerable groups, voices that are not drowned out in a sense by powerful actors trying to stamp their own outcomes on a process. So I would say pay attention to your design proposals. We've actually had this debate even around the language of citizen assembly and people's assembly and how you design those in a way that, that, that they're as inclusive as they can possibly be. So for many people in this conversation, many years have been involved in the transformational end of this, see this as a really exciting opportunity to do something different on the island and learn the lessons. So that's just again, tentative response. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I see Siobhan has come back in again, but I would just like to read um, Kevin's uh, comment and query to the panel. I don't know if we'll have time to address it, uh, Siobhan. Kevin says, what do the panel feel are the main barriers to progressing human rights change within Northern Ireland? Political vetoes seem to trump hard evidence that we need additional protections. How can we work around that? 
Constitutional change is certainly a legitimate option in that regard, but are there other options if the government or specific parties are not allowing change to happen at the pace that communities require? I don't think there's a short answer to that or there's a short response that can be made to that, but I want to thank Kevin for it. And is there anything would like to draw, anyone would like to pop in and, and make any comment back to Kevin? Mark? Just gonna say, yeah, that's a very helpful question. One of the, uh, it's already been mentioned, one of the big drivers of, of rights development in recent years has been uh, public interest litigation. Uh, we've lost uh, direct access to a number of, of rights in the charter, but as Colin has said, there's a, the protocol uh, is, is in place. It has a primacy over conflicting national law. So there are, uh, the, the true scope and effect of the, of the protocol and the rights that, that can uh, come through it are, are still to be uh, discovered. Thank you very much, Mark. Siobhan, will I hand over to yourself? I think you're on mute. Thank you all for a really stimulating and challenging discussion. I, I have one question that you don't have time to answer, um, but I'll just pose it anyway, because um, I, I did not grow up in Northern Ireland. I grew up in three different countries, uh, part of the time in the South in Cork, part of the time in England. My father's from a working class background and a part of the time in uh, West Africa, Ghana and Nigeria. So uh, in Ghana, Nigeria, we had quite a nice life as colonizers effectively. And um, uh, my grandmother's house in West Cork had no running water, no toilets, nothing. And in England, we were in a shifting uh, environment. And um, in listening to the conversations that have come up today, there's been, um, the, much of it has come out, it's come out of the Belfast Agreement, which came out of the conflict and the struggle for freedom from colonization, independence. And there's um, within that frame, a lot of talk coming out about uh, whether or not a referendum about the nature of Northern Ireland, not just the Bill of Rights, but the nature of Northern Ireland itself and how it links within the broader uh, context of, uh, of uh, United Ireland, possibly if that is what people want. But there's also a discussion of uh, rights that uh, are not specific to that conflict, uh, women's rights, rights for um, uh, people with disabilities, right, and mental health rights. And this week, we've had lots and lots, the TGI has uh, seems lots of um, talks. So Monday, there was a talk on intersectionality, um, which was an international speakers um, talking about the legacy of colonialism, um, the issue of intersectionality, um, things like um, how the intersections of race, class, gender um, impact on uh, how you, the, your experience of equality or non-equality within a society. And on Wednesday, tomorrow, we're having um, a talk about the rollback of uh, women's rights, or at least I see it as a rollback of rights with the possible um, I can't think of the word, removal of the um, uh, benefits legacy of Roe and Wade. And I was wondering to what, how, to what extent can these debates, how are they integrated, the international uh, challenges pushing against, I would say, colonialism and patriarchy and um, the legacy of exclusion of uh, societies that don't, uh, people within societies that don't contribute financially. Uh, so possibly it's a challenge to capitalism. How those broader uh, issues and rights equalities intersect with the very specific challenge for Northern Ireland. Does that question make sense? The question is wonderful, Siobhan. It's wonderful. Your comments um, are enough for maybe a podcast again, where we'd ask you to come along. <laughs> <laughs> And, and address issues, uh, you know, understand and track the pertinence of the issues we raise that are on an international stage. 
Yes. And certainly the issue that you raised at the end, do you know, we're feeling the rollback. It's an international experience, absolutely so rightly so. And it's actually a, a great way to end our discussion, to ask, to be asked by you to raise our eyes to the horizon, if you like, of the relevance of our discussions on an international stage. So often we are deeply engaged in the immediate um, struggles that are going on in our own society, and rightly so. But maybe there's, um, you're forever having talks at TGI, maybe there's, maybe there's an opportunity here. <laughs> Some links up. Links up to the yes. Thank you very much for, for hosting us, Siobhan. Thank you, uh, Ailish, for chairing wonderfully, and thank you all for your wonderful contributions. It's been a great lunchtime for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.